Hello friends, this episode of the podcast is sponsored by Gugu. The Gugu Sleep Company makes great mattresses which help you sleep better. How do I know? Because I own one myself and it's definitely one of the most comfortable beds I've ever slept on. It's a cool new concept, bed in a box. The bed arrives in a box, open it up, unseal the plastic wrap and your awesome new Gugu mattress is ready to go. Sleep is super important for your health and well-being, and owning a Gugu mattress is one way to achieve that. Furthermore, Gugu is really affordable. They deliver free, have a 100-night sleep satisfaction guarantee, and now offer the Business and Beers podcast listeners a special deal. Go to gugu.jp, click on the Offer button and enter BB Japan for your 20% discount and get ready for sweet dreams. Better sleep, better you. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Business and Beers Japan. This episode, I speak with Timothy Connor. He is the managing director of the Japan market advisory company Sinovate. We discuss many valuable cultural insights and hear about his experiences from nearly 30 years in Japan. These days, customer centric, creating touch points, customer journey, the experience economy are all buzzwords we hear in the consumer retail industry. And it's the area where Timothy has a very qualified and unique take on how brands should approach the Japanese consumer. The future is the customer as a point of sale. This is Timothy's mantra and is the cornerstone of his recently developed business model called Responsive. We'll discuss his new concept, implementation, and how both consumers and brands can benefit from Responsive. This is an interesting conversation with a true Tokyo veteran. This is Timothy, don't call him Tim, Connor. First drink, cheers, and welcome to Business and Beers. Thank you very much. Tim, thanks for coming. Timothy. No problem, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll do that too. Please do. <laughs> that's, that's, you know, the thing is, I have a couple friends named Timothy, but they all go by Tim. So for me, it's、uh, a little bit of a, of a habit. Many do. I don't. I left the US in, to go study in France. It was at college. While I was there and while I was studying in, in Paris, you、yeah. know. For some reason, nobody in Europe looked at me as Tim, and, every, and I was Timothy everywhere I went. And so I just became, in that year, I transformed into Timothy. And so I came back, and I was Timothy, and my, the, the girl I was dating at the time was fine with that. She said, I like that. And so when I came to Japan, it was、yeah. just a, automatic that I started off as Timothy, and I've just ever, I've been Timothy ever since. How many years have you been in Japan? Do I have to tell the truth? Nobody will know. No.、Oh. <laughs> Actually, more than 30. More than 30? Yes. Exactly.、Well. Although I don't usually advertise it. Why?、Uh, just it gets people thinking about your age. Is age an issue with you? It's an issue with some people. And what do you like the most about doing business in Japan? What I like about Japan is that the system works. Japan works. It's a,、uh, the rule of law here. Works. Yeah. It's very well put together. It's not as complex as like Vietnam or India. And everything works. And there's a set of rules 
for pretty much everything. Yep. Also, invisible set of rules Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. Because of the rigidity of the rules, things work. On the dark side of that, or on the opposite side of the rigidity, which can be frustrating for people, but the reality is you, you can't game the system here. You, you cannot. And so what I like to tell people is don't even try to game the system. Learn the system. Learn the rules first, and then you can figure out how to go around them or, or, or use them to your advantage. One of the questions that I'm going to ask you later is what is your favorite Japanese word that doesn't have one a direct translation into English? You know, like wabi-sabi or ikigai or whatever. I do have one. But I, I, I'll ask you that in a minute. But I have one that's the, the, the Japanese word that I hate the most in business, zende ganai. Yes. There's no example of that happening before. Therefore, we're not going to do it. So it's kind of a, it's a closed-minded statement mm-hmm. where you might come up with an idea. I remember going way back when I worked at Tokyo Classifieds. I wanted to do an ad campaign with uh, JR. Mm-hmm. And I, I proposed to JR that we put the, the ads in all of the trains, even on the outside, like wrap the trains, what they mm-hmm. call now train jack. And they'd been doing it in Europe and in the U.S., but they weren't doing it in Japan. And so I, I actually recommended that. And that's exactly what they said. They said, Zen yes, we understand, but in Japan, it's never been done before. Mm-hmm. Therefore, we won't be the first people to do that. Right. But now, everybody does it. So I always wonder, who was the first person that convinced JR or the, the bus companies or whatever to actually do that? Where was that tipping point? That always fascinates me. It's, I would venture that it was initially the cars, the promotion cars that started doing it, like uh, Red Bull. Yes, yes, yes. Uh-huh. And the first group that got on board after that were the buses, right? The, the bus wraps. That happened quite a long time ago. It did. JR said, okay, we're not going to miss out on this. It's great it's, revenue, it's too. great revenue. The other thing I did at Tokyo Classifieds that's an interesting story is we wanted to expand distribution of the magazine and we wanted to get it at the kiosks in all the subways. Oh, so yeah. I went to the head of the kiosks. It was in Kanda. My business pitch to them was, you know, we publish 30,000 copies or 40,000 copies of this magazine and we will put it in your kiosk off to the side. It's free. And this is before the Hot Peppers and all these free magazines were out. Mm-hmm, okay? mm-hmm, uh, at the time, the only magazine that was out in Japan was Tokyo Walker. So there were no free papers back then, only right. Tokyo Classifieds. And their first idea was, why should we give away free stuff? And I said, because you know, 40,000 people will be stopping by. And if only, and I reduced it to the ridiculous, the classic sales technique. I said, if only one out of 10 people buy a stick of gum or a pack of gum, this is what you will earn. We are giving you foot traffic to your kiosk. Mm. And in theory, you should increase sales by A, B, and C. And it didn't resonate with them at all. They were like, well, I still don't get it. I still don't get it. And finally, I explained that it was an English magazine. And foreigners and Japanese alike would be very interested in it. And it was for internationalization. Kokusai ka no tame. And bing, the light just went on for them. So, <laughs> so that was the key to getting, and it, it happened. We got it in about, it was about 50 or 60 subway locations. Wow. Yeah. Awesome. The, the, the story how we got it in there was interesting. It, 
It had nothing to do with financial gain for them. Mm-hmm. It had everything to do with image and internationalization. Yeah, it's interesting. The uh, the, the Zenday Ganai, it's never been done before. Is um, It's interesting because if you look at Japanese law, Japanese law is essentially... But the U.S. The U.S. law is based on precedent, right? Zenday. Right. Japanese law is not. It tends to be more rule-based. And so... It's funny to say it's never been done before That's because yeah. we're not looking. Japanese law itself is not a precedent-based system, and so, so it's just arbitrary rules that somebody made up and said these are the rules. I think it's I think it's a risk aversion technique. Myself, they don't, I nobody, agree. Wa- nobody wants to be the first, and uh, as soon as w- somebody does it, everybody else gets on board. Well, my theory is that Japanese make rules based on the minority. If there are 10,000 people and 9,999 do one thing in one way, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. that one person does one thing in a different way, Yes, they will make the rule, not for the 9,999 people, they will make the rule for the one person. Right. And that might inconvenience 9,999 other people, but they will avoid claims or trouble from the one person. That's right. Yep. Yeah, it's not based on common sense. It's based on risk aversion. Completely, hundred percent agree. And and the rules in Japanese law as well are basically set up that way as well, aren't they? It's to avoid the negative. Cheers. Uh, first drink. Cheers and welcome to Business and Beers. Thank you very much. Can I ask you how old you were when you first came to Japan? I came to Japan just a bit out of uh, college, actually. I'll tell you how I got here. I had spent um, I'd spent a year in Paris studying. I came back and I went back to the uh, back to the U.S. I'm from Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I went back to my university. And I was looking for a new challenge, and the new challenge just happened to be I I, I ran into some foreign exchange students from Japan. They were early, wealthy, young Japanese. They had way too much money to spending money. They had cars. None of us had cars, but they were really fun and. So I said, what's my new challenge going to be my last year at school? And I said, you know, if they teach Japanese, I'll take that. You know, this is the, this is the kind of challenge you set for yourself that you never expect to have to handle. Yeah. Guess what they were ha- offering that year at my college? Japanese. So Guzen, doesn't it? Guzen. <laughs> and so I took two semesters of Japanese, had a great time, just had a blast. Really? Had a fantastic teacher but just a ball of fire. We had so much fun. It was so interesting. She pushed me to apply for the JET program. Oh, JET program. I heard that's really taking off. JET taking off. The humor is not a part of this uh, podcast, that's for sure. <laughs> you went into the interviews and they said, what, what would be the biggest challenge for you if you went to Japan? And I said, well, be, being stuck out in the middle of nowhere in the country where there were no other English speakers. Yeah. I said, okay, great. So challenge number two, guess what happened? Guess where I got put? Iwate. Yes, Morioka. Okay, close. (laughs) To Ohoku. There were five other English speakers in town. Five. Count them. But best way to learn the language, learn the culture, learn about Japan. In the JET program, you teach English? No. Well, you don't really teach English. You assist teachers. But in the JET program, there's no like uh, business internships or anything no, like no, that. No, no, it's, it's all language learning-based. Okay, educational-based. High schools. Okay, got it. The other thing I learned was um, I learned traditional drinking culture as well. Because, yes, after a day yeah. of, uh, of these, um, you know, 
classes together. Really yeah. what the teachers wanted to do is take the foreigner out and feed him sake. Sure. Of course. I bet your Japanese got a lot better after you had a few bottles of sake. Oh, yes. I was mastered it. Mastered. <laughs> In your own mind, you were fluent. Yes, yes that's right. Yeah, been there. So that's what, that's what brought me here. And yeah. it, was, it was the 80s. And I came down to Tokyo, and it was the bubble yeah. in Japan. I was here then, too. You came in the, during the bubble. Mm-hmm. It was time to reinvent oneself, and I did. In the mornings, I went to design school. In the afternoons and the evenings, I worked in a, uh, a training company. They yeah. sold training programs. I quickly I became the, uh, the, the head of their main branch rather quickly after about six months. And so... Japanese company? Japanese company, yes. Yep. In the evening, I was working on putting together the, the demo programs for the potential customers. So that was kind of the, that was the beginning, I didn't realize it, of the, the whole idea of the experience of the person across the table from me. So you were in your early 20s at this time? Yes. And the reason I asked that question is I've, I've been interviewing quite a few people for this podcast. Some of them have come to Japan in their 30s or even 40s, and maybe they were expat or whatever. However, like you and myself, I came to Japan early 20s. And mm-hmm. it's very interesting to, to go through that whole progression now in charge of operations for all of Japan for the world's largest kitchenware company. Mm-hmm. But I started off in a cold warehouse, you know, exchanging uh, price tags on, on clothes. You know, I've done the whole, you know, kind of rags to riches, you know, yeah, air quotes sure. for that. And I think that that experience from entry level all the way to executive level experience in Japan is is valuable for people to hear about or to learn about or whatever. So it sounds like you have that as well. Yes. I see. Your current company, Sinovate, yes. right? Uh, your current company, Sinovate, helps companies grow by improving customer experience implement customer-centric digital transformation and strategic business model innovation. The future is the customer as a point of sale. Dude, there's a lot of buzzwords in there. There is. There are a lot of buzzwords in there. The best line in that is the future is the customer as a point of sale. And I've never really heard it phrased that way before. But I agree with it. Mm. How do you accomplish that? The only way to do that correctly is to be responsive to your customer and to be reading in advance of your customer. You're not always going to read correctly. You're not always going to know for sure. And so the, what you want to do is you want to envelop your customer, surrounding, if you will, your, the, your customer and potential customers, past customers, all of them, with all of the ways that they could possibly interact with your brand. And make sure, not that you control them, just making sure that they have access to what they want, wherever they want, whenever they want it. And it might be information, it might be product, it might be purchasing, returns, could be any of those things. Maybe they have one of your products and they'd actually like to buy a, a new one, but they don't need to. Mm-hmm. Actually want to step up, right? Okay. okay. I've got, let's say I've got a, uh, a bag from some brand and no commercials here, so I want to use Gucci. it. Gucci. Sure. <laughs> let's say you've got a Gucci bag and you want to. Coach. And you want to move up to Hermes. Ooh. What you really want customers to be thinking is, I have this Gucci bag, the small one. I want to upgrade to a bigger one, a fancier one, a more expensive one. Okay. Right? Yep. I want to drag them up that value chain. The best way to do that is have them always interacting in th- with your brand in some way. 
the idea of responsive as a as a set of structures, customer experience 2.0 is no longer engaging with your customers. It means it means beyond that, what ex- knowing what your customers are experiencing. How do you how do you get that? Uh, how do you find that out? There are many ways. Okay. There are many ways you can find it out. The traditional ones are t- like a voice of customer system. You, often it's surveys is the, is the standard way of doing it. Exit interviews. There are mystery shopping. Mm-hmm. There's uh, there are online tools for online shopping for in the digital world where somebody goes through and they've just finished a, some process on your site, whether it's purchasing or ordering. Yep. And a, for example, a bot will pop up and say, "Do you have a moment to answer a question?" Kind of thing. Uh, all of these tools and the whole set of them is the ideal way mm-hmm. to make sure that you're always understanding how the customer ju- experienced what you just did. Do you understand net promoter score? Sure. Okay. Yes. Do you do you agree with it? I think net promoter score is one measure that a lo- that's easy to understand. The, the the issue I have with net promoter score is um, what if I told you that the the, the Let's use a different brand this time. Yeah. Um, the, uh, My brand, Zwilling. Yes. Let's say that the Zwilling N- NPS is 62. Okay. What does that mean? Average. <laughs> but in net promoter score, it's negative. So what does that mean? I mean, so what? Isn't it from 0 to 100, and 80 to 100 means the customer is satisfied with their experience and in interaction with your brand? Well, the net promoter score is... The total number of nines and tens subtracted from yeah. the total number of up through six. And so you can have just a couple of, or you can have quite a lot of, actually it's the other way around, isn't it? Um, you can have only a few. Only if there was a way to look up the definition of net promoter score. <laughs> now, it's, it's possible to have a negative net promoter score. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, but does that really tell you what, yeah. what's going on? And this, it, it depends on the number of people that have answered it. Is zero to six, uh, are they really the detractors? Really? And, and who answers this, by the way? Net promoter score, I, I have no problem with using it as one measure, but it, it also needs to be used with other qualitative measures as well. Often, the people who answer these surveys are the zero, one, two, three super detractors, or the yeah, I think whatever you did is fantastic, and the people yeah. automatically give you a nine ten. So what about all the other people that are not that are not scoring you right. for whatever reason? They just they don't they don't feel like doing it. Right. Are you really getting a picture of what your customers are experiencing? But what you're getting though is you're getting a satisfied customer pretty much to begin with because they already came to our store and they already bought something. Sure, sure. So anyone who buys something you know, in, in general is usually a fan or they already like your product. Our, ex- our products are not cheap. Mm. So there's not a lot of impulse buy in our stores. We have obviously impulse buy products, mm. but for the most part, what we're famous for, which is knives and cast iron pots, those cost 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 yen. And so there's not a lot of impulse buy customers for those, for those products. Right. Perfect. Perfect. Perfectly said. And if you think of the customer as the point of sale or point of non-sale, mm-hmm. um, somebody who's interacted with your brand by coming near your store, in your store, uh, and then leaves without purchasing, those are the people we want to talk to. Right. 
those are the people we want to talk to. But I think that's my understanding of Net Promoter Score is it's an exit interview of everybody that comes out of your store, whether they purchase or they don't purchase. That was my understanding. The issue I have with NPS is that NPS is simply that, that it's, it's only one value. Yeah. Um, and it should be taken in tandem with a lot of other measures as well. That's a good point. You know, I have 36 stores throughout Japan, and we have store manager meetings four times a year, and I always give a presentation, I always give a speech, I always talk about something that's a trend in the market, and of course, uh, about hospitality and about service, I tend to focus on that. And there was a great article in, I think it was President Magazine in Japan, about omotenashi. Mm -hmm. And it took a survey of consumers on what they liked and they disliked the most. And you, when you go into a, a retail store and you purchase something, a lot of times the staff will carry your bag to the entrance of the store. I don't really, I'm not a big fan of that, to be honest with you, because I would rather just do the transaction, walk out. However, that was written in the rules of what service is. Mm -hmm. I'm using air quotes here, right? Yeah. Because I think in Japan, a lot of service is kind of like checklist service. So to give great service, you need to do A, B, and C. And one of the A, B, and Cs is after the purchase, walk to the front of the store with the customer, give them their purchase, and you know, bow and say thank you and goodbye. Well, it's interesting because this magazine article, the people that enjoyed that or felt that that was a great service was less than 50% of consumers cited that as a good example of omotenashi or of hospitality or whatever. And I thought that was interesting. So then what I said to my staff in my speech is part of good, great service and, and hospitality is reading the air, uh, reading the room. Mm -hmm. So if you're waiting on somebody, you can kind of tell if they enjoy getting personalized service or not, or if they're in a hurry or they, they just need to buy a gift and leave. Maybe they have a child with them and maybe the child is saying, Mom, let's go. I want to go to the toy store or whatever. So you have to read the air. Does that person want to get out to, to make the transaction and get out as quickly as possible? Or do they kind of want to dilly-dally and chat a little bit more and all that? In this case, you as a store manager, you read the air. You make a decision on whether you think it's appropriate or not. Mm -hmm. So use your common sense. Read the air. There's also something related to this. And since you brought it up, you brought up the word first. My favorite Japanese word that doesn't translate is omotenashi. Oh, Absolutely. wow. Hands down. So your favorite Japanese word is not... I, I take two issues with that. Number one, the word. Number two, that it's not translatable. I don't think it is. You don't think it is? I don't. You can give it a lot of meanings, but I don't think it's translated into one, one word. I know, you? you're, I know you're going to say hospitality, but I don't buy that. Okay. How, buy what, that. What, what do you define it as then? Motinashi is, as you said, I like that... The fact that you brought up reading the air yeah. is understanding what your customer is experiencing at all times and being a step in front of them, a step mm -hmm. ahead of them, mm, yeah. and guiding them along, if you will, okay, yeah. to greater enjoyment, to, 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 to have a better experience. I'll tell you, it's hard. It's not easy. It's, it's a, it's, I think it's a skill that you learn and you sort of internalize it. Omotenashi is omotenashi when it's internalized and you don't think about it. And it doesn't mean necessarily differential, depending on, on the situation. You don't have to be differential necessarily to provide omotenashi. I understand that there's a traditional uh, meaning behind it, which, and it comes from you know the hospitality you get in a ryokan. 
But as exactly. somebody as somebody very smartly said the other day, there's a kind of service at a Ryokan, and it's that's Ryokan service. And you may think it, you may like it or don't like it, but it's still that's the way. It's a traditional kind of service. Generally speaking, traditional ryokans will provide you with that traditional service. But traditional ryokans, isn't their level of service, or omotenashi as, you're, as you point out, isn't it a bit rigid? Isn't it omotenashi on the ryokan's terms, not you as an individual guest's terms? Well, I think it's on a long tradition. Like you take off, you, you have your dinner, and you decide, okay, it's time for a bath. We go take a bath. You come back, and you're, everything is clean. Your beds are laid out, the, they're turned down, etc. You haven't been gone that long. How did that happen? That's, that's the kind of thing. The kinds of things that happen invisibly. Okay. And so it's invisible service is a... Yeah, I like that definition. Invisible service. The, the stuff that you don't notice right away. Mm. And a second, second part of this goes, comes, to, uh, comes from Japanese culture and service, etc., as anybody knows who comes here, they find out that Japanese provide you with very polite service. Why? Because they expect it. And if you turn this on its head, Japanese customers expect that kind of service. And they may not, they, they may not be nice about it. They may actually be, be very sort of indifferent to you in the store, etc. But they expect you to be attentive and to provide them with the kind of service. Well, I think that goes a little bit back to the hierarchical structure of Japanese society. The kohai-senpai, the the customer, and then the the shop staff. There is a hierarchy there. Yes. And as me, as the customer, I expect you to bend over backwards for me, uh, you know, kiss my butt. And I, in turn, can treat you rudely if I want to Mm -hmm. because I'm the customer. Sure. Sure, I'd say I'm, you know, taking it to extremes. Yes, absolutely. Then you find somebody shopping in a. Uh, I just saw this the other day when I happened to go through a Louis Vuitton store, and there was a there was a woman shopping in there, and, and she was entirely indifferent to what was going on. And she was like checking her phone and sitting with her legs crossed. She wasn't even looking at the salesperson. In the end, she she was buying you know a, a three thousand dollar bag, right. four thousand dollar bag, and so she was getting <laughs> service for that sort of thing. She was getting service, but she was also feeling entitled. Absolutely. That's that's an omotenashi concept as well, right? Yeah. To make sure somebody feels just the right level entitled. That's I my like favorite it. word, omotenashi. You know where else I feel Japanese service or hospitality? There's two <laughs> other places other than hotels, other than restaurants. Number one is the gas station. All right, okay. Do you drive? Yes. You go to a full-service gas station? Yes, of course. Are these guys wash your windows. Absolutely. They f- take your trash. They Who would they ever come, go and get their hands smelly? They come running out. <laughs> they run out into traffic and stop traffic for you to leave. Yeah. I mean, it's it's an experience going to a full-service gasoline station, isn't it? And the price is hardly different. Anymore. And the other place is, I haven't been for quite a while, but when I first came to Japan, again, back in the bubble period, I was, I was teaching English corporate English to and after our lesson again like you in uh, Aomori Iwate 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 I said yes. Iwate what did you say you said Aomori no now. you said no you said Morioka yes Morioka is in Iwate oh it is yes oh okay so I was right after our English lessons they wanted to take me out drinking of course but they took and this was down in Osaka 
into Kitashinji, which is the like the kabuki cho of Osaka, and mm-hmm. we went to many snacks. Oh boy! Like, yeah, what would, that's a, that's a Japanese word. <laughs> it is that doesn't have a direct English translation. That's a right. Snack. Yes. How would you define a Japanese snack? Snack is a it's a club. It's a club. Yeah. It's a bar. It's a, it's a hostess club. It's a hostess club. Yeah, but without any of the innuendos yes, that might yes. come with a hostess image. Basically, it's just ladies that, that yeah. sit at the table with you and pour your drinks, laugh at your stupid jokes, mm. um, and very expensive. Yes. Anyway, I want to uh, ask you about your current company, yes. Cinovate. What does Cinovate do? Number one, I wanted to ask a little bit more about that. But secondly, is the responsive concept that you have, is that one part of Cinovate, or is responsive something that has split off from that. I'm a little bit confused about what you're currently doing. Cinevate is an advisory service that encompasses a lot of different things, okay. um, from market entry to very specific strategy consulting, interim country manager positions, anything like that. Okay. And within all of that, got a business unit, which you call responsive, which is focused on the transformation of customer experience. So Cinovate Advisory may do things that are not necessarily customer experience focused only. It's just business consultation. It is. It may come to pass that responsive, the customer agency, Mm -hmm. is its own thing. How has your experience in Japan created learnings for this new business responsive? So I started off as a design student and then I launched a design business. And at the same time in the evening I was in corporate training, um, bringing new people in who would be um, doing the delivery of of our products and services. And it was all about people. And so learning all of the ways that you can watch and read and try to read the air, as you said earlier, started back then. And little by little, I didn't realize it at the time that that was going to be the the core of everything that I do. But it's it's common. It's taken, you know, a number of years to realize that's, that's my sweet spot. I take... The actual mechanical learnings that I have, the f- I have a finance degree, so there's financial things, pricing, etc. There's marketing, which is bringing people into, getting people to come in and react with you. And then there's the strategy, which is what, what does your business actually do? What, how do you win the game? So if you look at marketing strategy and finance as a, let's call it a trifecta, the customer sits in the very center. Everything revolves around that customer. I mean, it sounds a bit... Cliche. That's that's yeah. That's the concept. Mm-hmm. And so everything is looking at the customer. Therein you get the term customer-centric organization. Are there any specific examples that you can use? I mean, everyone understands that you know customer-centric is again it's another buzzword. Sure and is. And creating you know great touch points or uh, outstanding customer experience. These are all these things that all the companies are saying. They're all buzzwords. People talk about it, but. How do you accomplish that? That's a good point, and, and you're right. Not a lot of companies execute well all the time in every space. That's my opportunity. Uh, I think that the best way to do it is to demonstrate it. It has to start at the top. It has to start with it has to start with the CEO. It has to start with his team, and they have to demonstrate that the customer that the customers are important. And in order to do that, the employees or the team is important. And so this is where we come back to a customer-centric organization will only happen yeah. if you have the secret sauce, and that's employee experience. I call it employee experience. I, too, 
want all of our customers that come to our store to have an incredible experience. I want them to leave with whether they purchase or they don't uh, purchase. They they come out feeling like they had a great interaction or a great experience in our stores. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But that's not easy to achieve that because so many people that work in retail are working for a thousand yen an hour, and when you have people that work for a thousand yen an hour, you get a thousand yen an hour quality people. I mean, you could pay somebody five thousand yen an hour and maybe get some really outstanding people, but then your P and L, you know, <laughs> takes a major hit. Yeah. So uh, how do we overcome this? Great question. Can you let me know when you get to the answer? Dude, this is your business. <laughs> this is what you're, tr- you're focusing on. It's absolutely true. To, to find good people is, is, is tough. First of all, you have the, uh, well, we have the scarcity of people. Right. right. I would venture forth that ultimately where we have to get to is we stop looking at s- stores as point of sale. We start looking at stores as experience centers. And... This may mean, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the apocalypse is in the U.S. because they, they, they have, there, there are too many big stores. And we're lucky in Japan. We don't have too many massive stores. But right. if the store becomes more of an experience center, ultimately, and turn the people who are in the store into the experience providers or the, the actors, if you will. I see you've been reading some of the Doug Stevens newsletters. Nope. No? No? Nope. Oh, okay. You and I, we subscribe to a lot of the same yep. newsletters. Yep. Yeah, and using the, the, the store as a media or the store as a customer experience center, yep. that's one of the big things that Doug Stevens talks about. Yeah, it is. I mean, because the customer doesn't go on a linear journey after all. But I think it's only going to get more that way, and stores really have to go that direction. But it's, it's a process. There's, yeah. You look at a, a store in the U.S., for example, Lots of open space. Right. Even if there are 10 customers in there, you can't see them. It looks empty. What what worse signal could there be for any kind of store restaurant than an empty one? Exactly. Nothing is worse. Here in Japan, we've got smaller spaces, and we like it brighter. Yep. And we like more product. And the, the, it was the Disney company, actually, who said this to us um, when we were designing the stores. And the, the designer did a bunch of shelves, and, and they looked at it, and they said, hmm, it's okay, but not enough product. People are accustomed to having a lot of product to look at, right? If sh- shopping is entertainment, that, I think that little by little, that's going to be relegated to the discount shopping, the Don Quixote's, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas brands are going to be looking more to have the experience, the experiential center. Yeah. How would you talk about my business? I have some ideas. Yeah. We have rolled out our first factory outlet store 2.0 for the past eight years we've used the same furniture we've used the same merchandising same vmd in all of our stores Mm -hmm. what we've launched this year we launched it in japan is our 2.0 and it's focused a little bit more on creating experiences before i tell you what they are i want to hear your your ideas on what you think my business kitchen kitchenware what do you think we could... I'm not trying to get free advice from you, from your business here, but I'm just seeing if we're on the same page. I've got four big ideas that we've already implemented. I'm just wondering, if, if I was engaging your business, is there any type of advice you might give me? First thing I would do is, is go visit one of your stores, sure. look at your yeah. products. You know, the obvious ones are there, The uh, being able to try the products and use them. Those are the sort of obvious low-hanging yep. fruits. Yep. 
I would say. There's also the uh, the brand story aspect of it. Bring it to life. Yep. Yeah. Bring it to life. We did that. Right behind the cash register, you usually have a big blank wall, or maybe you have a, a image or your logo or whatever. Zwilling has been around since 1731, <laughs> and so we have all these pictures, and they're in frames, of like somewhere in black and white of the old factory, or we have like an old knife that's in a case, and so we have all these historical images. So when you're at the cash register and you're looking up there, you can see. 200 years, almost 300 years of, of, of history right behind us. So we have that part of it. The first one, which you mentioned, was trying out the products. We also have a table, uh, fruits and vegetables on hand, and so you can actually try our knives and cut some things nice. and do some demonstrations, and also we do sharpening demonstrations. We oh, show nice. people how to sharpen their knife. Nice. Okay, so we're two for two. What's next? One more. We're talking story. only about knives? Nope, we're talking about our whole store because we have we have tools, gadgets, pots, pans, cooking. knives, cooking demos, absolutely okay. cooking demos. And I would also put forth some way of a very interactive, bring interactive the actual um, craftsmanship that's being done, video or something of, of the actual craftspeople working on the yep. knives, for example. Why do these knives have uh, certain marks on them. What, yeah. what What's the difference in the steel? Why? Yeah. What does that mean? Yeah, I bring it up because education. Yeah, there is a, there is a reason. There's a reason why a thirty thousand yen knife costs thirty thousand yen. Absolutely, we have three thousand yen knives, and we have thirty thousand. Of course, actually above thirty thousand. But there is a reason why that knife costs thirty thousand yen, and there's a huge reason why you should buy a thirty thousand yen knife versus a three thousand yen knife. We also do personalization, so name engraving on the blades. In this 2.0 store that we launched in, in Granbury Park in Minami Machida, mm -hmm. the other thing we created was a, we call it recipe finder. Mm -hmm. Stobe, the, the French cast iron brand, which yep. is our brand, has so many cookbooks that have been published. We've had 40 cookbooks published in the last three years. So what we have there is we have a little cookbook corner. Right. And we have 40 different cookbooks there. Absolutely. And what we wanted to say to the customers, please feel free to browse the cookbooks and take a photo of any recipe you think looks delicious. And part of that, I thought, was service and hospitality is that people are kind of browsing. They see a recipe there. Maybe they don't want to buy a whole cookbook. But my thought was... That's a service on our part, and if they go home and they cook that recipe and it tastes really good, the chances are they're going to come back and probably buy that cookbook or buy another cookbook. But we couldn't officially announce to do that because uh, publishing rights. We didn't advertise it, but we also don't discourage it if mm. anybody wants to do that. So, so it's, it's creating a lot of these things, experiences, personalization, historical, and then also inspiration. And the, the cookbook corner is the inspiration part. I, oh, I would yeah completely agree with that. Doing an actual cooking class would be really fun. But let me share something with you. Cooking demonstrations do not work at factory outlets. People go to outlets for entertainment. Nobody gets up in the morning and says, oh, I need to buy a new knife. I think I'll go to an outlet. And so you go to the outlet, you walk around, you're looking for your treasure hunting, basically. If you think about it, probably almost 100% of all purchases at outlets are impulse buys. Okay, sure. 
doing a cooking demonstration at a factory outlet, and it kind of goes back to this argument about shopping versus buying. At the factory outlet, people are looking for a deal. They're a little bit more, they are shopping, they're looking around for inspiration, but at the end of the day, they're there, they want to buy something. And so they don't want to spend too much time watching somebody make curry rice or whatever it is. Sure, if we had the choice to do it or not do it, we would choose to do it, but one of the factors there is I need to dedicate a person to do the cooking demonstration. Sure. And in a factory outlet, it doesn't pay for itself. The person does not pay for themselves. They don't add that much added value to the shopping experience in a factory outlet. In our full price stores, yes, it does work. Okay. In our factory outlet stores, no, it doesn't work. It doesn't, it doesn't pay for itself. That makes sense. That makes sense. Does Japan have any specific or unique characteristics regarding consumer marketing? What I mean by that is you often hear that the Japanese consumer is very unique or it's very specific, demanding. Yes, you mentioned that before. <laughs> but I really wonder at the end of the day, is the Japanese consumer really that much different? Well, one of the very, very specific characteristics of a Japanese consumer is they won't they don't they don't bargain and as you said before um, there's a reason that you pay 3,000 or 30,000 yen for a knife in Japan you get what you pay for and J Japanese know that they know yes. that if that they're gonna get a 30,000 yen worth of something the, mm -hmm. I, the, the question to them is do I spend it or not and so the rational aspect of all of this it, it, it's natural and so there's no thought of Gee, I'm gonna see if I can get this for twenty-seven thousand, right. kind of thing. That just do, it just doesn't come up in their psyche, unless they go to an outlet. Unless they go, yes. <laughs> well, they know they can do that. Yeah. So they know that they they go into a store. It's thirty thousand yen. They know they can go to an outlet and get it cheaper, it, but it won't be. They may not realize it's just not the same product. And I didn't mean to say that Japanese don't look don't like discounts. Of course they do. Outlets being the exception, of course, but sure. Um, but but again, that goes back to the rules. That's what an outlet is. Yes. That's why you go there, and that's what you expect to get there. In really simple words, layman's terms, explain yeah. this to me like I'm eight years old. Uh, what does Sinovate and Responsive do? I'll sit down with you and say, how well do you know your customers? If you say extremely well, I'm going to say you're lying. Mm -hmm. you, you don't know how well you don't know. Okay. And so what we want to do is we want to go through a, a set of phases with you a discovery phase find out what, what what's going on yeah we want to go through and we want to design a, an assessment for you okay which includes nps voice of the customer yes and we want to find out what are the customers thinking what does your staff think what do your previous customers think we want to put all that together and come up and figure out where where are you good because you're good in some areas you're going to be lacking in some areas too let's find out and then what we'd like to do is we'd like to set up an, a laboratory, okay. a pilot, if a you laboratory. will, an innovation laboratory within one of your stores, for example, or in a separate location, in a pop-up even. And we wanna, what we want to do is we want to take your current products, services, etc., and, and empower some of your staff to try and find new ways to represent it and to bring the products and design, do wow. some experience for the customers. They can try anything they want. 
anything goes, and we're going to measure what they do, and we're going to measure what the customers say. And we're going to get all that data back together, and we're going to sit down, and we're going to look. What did we do well? What worked? What didn't work? Yeah, I like it. And we refine it again and again. And it's it's kind of like large-scale A-B testing in a way. Sounds like it. And then when we get to a point where we've got some, I'm going to call it low-hanging fruit, things that are easy to implement, then we'll design a roadmap to cascade it out to all the stores. <laughs> things that are not, that have worked already. We know that, and we can tell everybody, we can get the buzz going among all of your stores. Okay. Then we'll do it all over again. And we'll do it on, a, on a, perhaps on, depending on the ideas that the team has, do something a little bit, do a, another laboratory, for example. Or an, How long does this whole process take? As long as you want it to. How short can it be? Because obviously, the longer it takes, the more expensive it is, right? So somebody like me who's running a company and often gets approached by consultants to do A, B, and C, that's all great, but I have a budget. We work off the budget. Maybe we do a small assessment. Maybe we do a small pilot. Sure. Maybe we only roll it out in two stores yep. for, for in the first year. You said one word that was interesting, empower. How do you empower Japanese employees? That's a whole nother podcast, my friend. It certainly is. <laughs> All right, man. And maybe on that note, yes. we will close it for today. Cheers, okay. Timothy. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for coming. And, you betcha. Uh, Keep selling. Thank you. And that was Timothy Connor, customer-centric thinking extraordinaire. For more information about his innovative concepts regarding responsive, he can be most easily reached via LinkedIn. And this concludes this episode of Business and Beers Japan. Thanks for listening and catch you next time. Cheers. Cheers.